right back through the door there, try to minister to um, families and kids the best we can. Also got a nursery in the far back. Um, we've got what we call a wiggle and giggle room there in the middle. And so if you've got a wiggly, giggly kid or um, even a little bit extra than that, would love for you to take advantage of that room. Um, if you'd like to, um, that's there for using every room I think we have available to us in the facility to that end. Um, we are finishing up the book of Acts today. Um, I don't know if you're sorry and sad or if you're glad um, that we're doing that. I've now spent four and a half years preaching through Luke's works. We started with the Gospel of Luke when we planted this church and then dove into Acts. If you were unfamiliar with it, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It gets a little confusing because there's a book um, in between, um, the book of John in your Bible, but he wrote both of those. As I told you, by word count, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. And so um, with the conclusion of today's sermon, you've, you've now studied the majority work of the New Testament. And um, Luke was just infatuated with Jesus. He was a well-known historian. He was a physician. And um, to tell you the truth, I'm going to miss him. Um, I've gotten to know him um, for four and a half years, study what he's written, gotten to realize how he's thought um, in a small measure, have entered into his love for Jesus, to a small measure, entered into his love for the church um, that he was able to accompany the Apostle Paul and see um, planted. And so, um, so I'm going to miss Luke um, a good bit. We're going to take a, a break from preaching straight through books of the Bible for about a month, and we're going to dive into a sermon series next Sunday about health. Um, what I think you've probably realized in your life as a Christian is that you can be truly saved. You can have your heart transformed by the gospel, be in Christ, delighted in by God, having all of your sins cleansed away, being justified without a shadow of a doubt, and yet still have a lot of things that go wrong in your life. You can still make a huge mess of your life um, if you are unwise. And so what the Lord wants for us is not just that we would get through Jesus a get out of hell free pass that we would then turn in at the end of our days, but he actually wants health for us. And not health defined by secular books that want to say health is this or health is that, health defined biblically. And so we're going to take a look at healthy living as it's described by the Bible um, over the next four Sundays. I hope that it'll be an encouragement to you. Um, as I've told you before, Genesis talks about three relationships that were broken through sin. Relationship with God, relationship with other people that culminates in the relationship of marriage and family, and relationship with creation that culminates in how we deal with our possessions. And so that's how we're going to work our way through that series. We're going to talk about health in general and what it means to grow healthy in Christ, what it means to become alive. Then we're going to look at healthy relationship with the Lord and what that looks like. We're going to look at healthy relationships with one another um, and why so often truly converted Christians can do serious harm in their relationships and their marriages. They can go weeks, months, and years with a lack of restoration um, that many people can go their entire lives and not learn how to have a healthy friendship. So we're going to look at why that is and how we can bring some resolution to that in our third sermon, third sermon of the series. And our last sermon in this series, we'll look at how um, our relationship with creation um, can be undermined and how to get health. So, for example, you might know people who are truly saved that might fall into an, an addiction of some sort. Uh, so, uh, so for today, let's take alcoholism and an addiction to alcohol. Um, that is a facet of creation, whether it's hops or wheat or whatever else, that gets mastery over you and rules you, 
even though you may be truly converted. And so how do we deal with things like possessions and addiction and those different aspects that I know if you've not um, encountered yourself, have bumped up into and the relationship with other people. And what we'll come to is that the Lord doesn't just want you to be saved. Of course, he wants that. But that salvation is much bigger than that. That when he makes you alive in Christ, he's bringing healing to the hurts and to the, the errors and to the lack of wisdom that you have in your life. And so a little bit of an introduction um, as we move forward um, into that series. And I'll put out more information as we move forward. We start that next Sunday. But that given... We can finish up the book of Acts this morning. We're in the second half of Acts 28, beginning in verse 11. Paul is going to arrive in Rome. He is going to have a conversation with the Jews in Rome and then um, is going to um, at least have Luke end the book of Acts in a somewhat unexpected way. And so this is the word of our God, um, starting in verse 11 of Acts 28. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Rigium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patchouli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Because this is the word of our God, let's pray this morning as we consider it. Father, we love you. We're thankful that you've given us your word to be to us a sail to push us forward, to be to us a rudder to help us to steer our lives, to be to us a ballast to help give us balance, to be to us an anchor to help us when life is rough. And so as we study it now, Heavenly Father, bring your Holy Spirit. We would see Jesus. We would repent of our sins 
we would believe deep, more deeply in the gospel of grace by which we've been saved, and we would preach this to all who would listen. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This passage breaks down pretty easily into two different sections. I won't go as deep as we could go into these sections. As I told you, I decided through the second half of Acts to go rather quickly um, so that we could cover more ground and not get bogged down into some of the travel narrative. What you see in the first half that we'll look at is that Paul, indeed, as God had promised, has come safely to Rome. A few chapters ago, God had told the Apostle Paul on an especially discouraging night when he was tempted to give up his own ministry. Paul encouraged him that he not only would have successful ministry, but that it was God's plan to take him to Rome where he would testify to the truth of the gospel. If we think all the way back into the beginning of Acts, something that Jesus said to his disciples as he gave them what we call the Great Commission is that the gospel they preached would extend beyond Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and then the last one, which you Bible scholars know, to the ends of the world. Now Rome was the capital of the known world. It was the very center of all culture. The Roman Empire at that time brought um, sway over the different regions that were known to be in existence. And so with Paul arriving in Rome, God has accomplished his plan that he promised through Jesus that the gospel would go out and reach to the very ends of the world. In 300 years from when this was written, the entire Roman Empire would actually be declared to be a Christian empire, which is pretty amazing um, when you think of it. And you would have Constantine being the first Christian um, Roman emperor. And from there, Christianity spread into North Africa and across Europe and to those tribes and progressed on into the Middle Ages, across the ocean and into a little place called um, Virginia. There were some folks in Virginia. They were German Calvinists. And those German Calvinists were not allowed to stay within the colony as it was known on the eastern shore of the state of Virginia. And so those German families were pushed into the foothills of the Appalachians and they established a community. And that community, because it was German Calvinist Christian families, was named Germana. And that's where we get the name of the place that we're living in right now, Germana, because there were these families that wanted to worship the Lord. And that was a direct line from what was started um, in Acts 1, continued to Acts 28, and continued beyond there. And so my hope for you as we end Acts, I'm giving away the end of my sermon, is that you would see the book of Acts not just as a story, not just as a historical document, but as your story that has reached into your own culture of Culpeper and is continuing to move forward as the gospel breaks into not only new areas, but new hearts like yours and mine. And so the first thing I want you to see in the first, this first section before we talk about Paul talking to the Jews is how God accomplishes his will. And hopefully this is an encouragement to you. Christians are called a people of the book. We love the Bible. 
no matter how we get at it, whether it's on a screen or it's on your iPhone or it's on your Android app or it's on your tablet or it's in your grandmother's King James Bible that you have on your shelf um, at home, whether it's spoken, whether it's heard in an audio book, no matter what it is, we are a people of a book and we love God's word and we believe in God's word. God has not only told us of Jesus, but he's made specific promises that concern us. And not just us generally as a global church, not just us as, say, a denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, but particularly Christ's covenant here in Culpeper. And the way that God brings about his purposes in your life are often not only unexpected, but different than you would have it be, but nonetheless confirmed to be true in Scripture. And so we have Paul being promised he'd get to Rome, along with all of his traveling companions, And here he is in Rome, along with all of his traveling companions. God's word, his promise spoken, has been sure. It's a testimony to putting confidence in the book we call the Bible, the written word of God, even as we're looking at it here, recorded by Luke. But it wasn't necessarily in the way that I think the Apostle Paul would have chosen, and we've talked about this in the weeks past, that Paul could have been ushered to Rome immediately, like Star Trek transporter style. Like God just says, you're going to Rome. He was there, he's not there. All of a sudden, he's in Rome. He's there, he's been transported miraculously, like some people in the Bible have happened to. Transported miraculously, one location to another location. He could have been assigned by God a legion of angels to accompany him, to crowd around him, and protect him from anyone who wanted to hurt him. Somebody flings a stone at him and a big burly angel catches it to protect the apostle Paul. Those angels could have stood there in their bright array testifying to the message that the apostle Paul spoke. Hear him, it's true what he says about Jesus of Nazareth. God could have done those things very easily, but God chose to take Paul there through very, very different means. He chose to use things like stonings. He chose to use things like whippings. He chose to use things like beating with rods. I mean, you think Jack Bauer had a rough life. I mean, Apostle Paul, if you could look at his back, his bare back and just see his skin, it would be a map of torture a map of ongoing attempts to simply destroy his life and his body. And God in those moments did not somehow give him a nerve block, didn't go in and, you know, spinal like women get when labor, so you don't hear it, like you don't feel it. He didn't do any of those things. Paul felt every beating. He felt every whiplash when the shards of glass and bone embedded in the whip were wrenched across his back. He felt it. We are being in a day where on YouTube and the news media, we see violent things, things that we thought could not happen in our own culture. We are nowhere near, I'm not speaking in hyperbole, nowhere near the violence that you saw in the Roman Empire or within Judaism towards those who opposed them. And the Apostle Paul was a witness and testimony to those things in his sufferings. So we see that the Lord God uses suffering and just the normal mundane aspects of our lives to accomplish his will. 
What we want to do is we want to say God's made a promise and that means that all things are going to work out for me in a way that I want in comfort and security. Um, one of the things that I had to oversee, I was a, I was a youth minister at the seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, um, big youth ministry. There was a renovation of our youth house, um, which is a whole floor that was remodeled um, and had several ladies who volunteered to decorate um, the youth house. And if you ever run into a situation, it's kind of like the tiger in the cage problem. Like sometimes it's helpful to let the tiger out of the cage, but then how are you going to get it back in? Um, and so... So these ladies um, designed, and we talked about colors and all kinds of other things. Um, and one of the things they put on the wall were Christian posters, um, which most of which really aren't Christian, um, at least Orthodox Christian. And one of them was, maybe you've seen it, a, a picture of, um, it, was, it was supposed to be, you're supposed to look at it quickly and think it's Michael Jordan, because um, it's a guy in a red jersey with a 23 on his back. Um, but you can tell it's actually not, um, because that would violate all kinds of, they'd have to like pay the Chicago Bulls to do that. And all, so it's just a guy and a red 23 jersey, um, and he's about to dunk a basketball. And it says, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, and that was, the, uh, the color on the walls was fine. Some of the other things, I said, we, we have to take that down. Like, we can't do that, because that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, even dunk a basketball. I'm done with, I'm 6'2", I am the, 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 the shortest jumping 6'2 guy you know. I'm never going to dunk a basketball. I'm just done. I'm 36 now. It's just not going to happen. I've given it up. I can trust in Jesus. I can have the faith that would move mountains, and I'm not going to dunk a basketball. And that's a silly example. That's often how we think God's promises will be accomplished in our lives. God's made a promise. All things work together for those that love him. Well, of course, then that means that I'm not going to get sick, that I'm never going to lose my job, that I'm never going to fight with my spouse, that things are going to be happy, I'll never deal with clinical depression, I'll never have the fill-in-the-blank of the suffering. And we simply don't see that as an orthodox doctrine in Scripture. You don't see that in the life of Paul. And so you see in this passage, in this first part, with Paul setting foot in Rome, finally in Rome, those two twin truths being held side by side without any apparent tension, that God's word is true, what he says is accomplished, that it is as good as done when he says it. And it often, for the Christian, involves tremendous suffering and happens in a way that you don't expect and wouldn't have planned if you had been able to plan it out. I just want you to see that in Scripture because a lot of things are being taught within Christendom now that are just on, on one side goofy, and that's kind of giving um, a little bit of, of grace. On other sides, completely unbiblical. We would call the health and wealth gospel is very alive um, within Christendom. That if you believe hard enough and if you work hard enough and you love Jesus enough and you raise your hands enough in worship and you know enough reformed doctrine that you're just going to have a great, wonderful life without suffering and it's just a lie from hell and smells like smoke. It does. And so I tell you that now so that you see it in Scripture that we can suffer with joy. We can see the things that we face and the struggles that we have and not doubt that God's purposes are being accomplished for us. And if your life is just peachy and um, you, you never experienced something like that, go try and plant a church. <laughs> just kidding. Not really. Um, 
So that's the first half that I encourage you with. I hope you see that. We're people who believe in the inerrancy and truthfulness of the Word of God. We believe in orthodoxy. We study the Bible. I've got hundreds, literally hundreds of books um, telling about different doctrines of um, the Bible. We love the Word of God, and we love the Word of God in our lives as it teaches us and comforts us in suffering to trust in the Lord God even when our circumstances don't make sense and are honestly quite painful. Um, So expect that. Look for that. Um, We're not dour in that. We're not just this depressed people that hang our heads. We're realistic. We're realistic. And when we're realistic, we can be realistically joyful, and we can realistically feel pain. One of the more healthy things that many of you could do is when somebody asks you how you're doing, simply respond, not so well. We're getting into the healthy sermon series. We always have to feel like we have to say, I'm doing fine, thank you very much. Things are wonderful. We can actually say, I'm not doing so well. So... We'll leave that for the healthy sermon series. So that was the first part that we saw, the first half of this section we've looked at. Paul arrives then and begins his conversation with the Jews at Rome. Now, what I want you to see as we move into this section is the two unexpected things that happen in this passage. What you expect at the end of Acts, if you've been following along, is for Paul to have some conclusion to his legal troubles. He's been in trouble with the Jews, kind of in trouble with the Romans. He's appealed to Caesar. That's got him a trip to Rome. He's finally arrived in Rome. By now, he's already written the book of Romans, the next book in the Bible that follows this, a letter to the Christians at Rome. And so what you expect Acts to end with, as Luke records it, you even see the we in this section. Luke is with him. As he gets to Rome, you expect Luke to summarize. And this is what happened with with, with Paul's legal trial. They acquitted him. Or they decided that he should be this, or he had house arrest for a little while, or whatever it might be, and he just leaves it out. We expect there to be some interaction with the church at Rome. I mean, Paul's written his most weighty theological letter to the church at Rome. He's, of course, during those two years, had some interaction with all the Christians there in Rome, and they're completely left out. We don't end with either of those things. What we do see is an echo from the first chapter of the book of Acts. And here Luke is telling you what the important things are as you leave this book behind. In verse 23 and verse 31 in our text, you see Paul summarizes, kind of like bookends. It happens in the beginning. He speaks to the Jews. In the end, summarizes his teaching. He taught about the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he taught about Jesus the Christ, the King and the Messiah, and proved that he was the Messiah from the Old Testament. That was his mission. That was his job. That was what he did in his missionary service. The kingdom of God is here in your midst. Everything you've longed for and the things that you've created in your mind about what utopia would be like, all of your hopes and all of the remedies to all of your fears has finally arrived. If, if you were a Jew, that's what you would think of. You would think about the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom of God. You're not, you're an American, you're American kind of getting close to election time. And so Americans tend to put their hope on political office and political people. I mean, if you want to do a little study in American religion, look at all of the ways that we look to political candidates with messianic eyes. That finally there's going to be a guy or a gal in office that's going to bring what I want, and America is going to be whatever you wanted America to be. 
It's amazing when you get around to election time, or even you and your own life, the one-day maybes. All of us have one-day maybes. I encourage you not to live in your one-day maybes, but you think, well, one day maybe we'll be out of debt. One day maybe my children will be out of the home. Again, one day maybe I'll be married. One day maybe I'll reach where I am with my profession. The one-day maybes are woven into your heart. It's a part of your spiritual DNA. God made you that way to long for what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. It's just a word we put on it. And so your hopes and your aspirations, according to the Apostle Paul in the Bible, have now been realized in human history as Jesus has entered in and brought this kingdom to bear, a kingdom that continues to come and will be finalized with Jesus' return at his second coming. That's what Paul taught, and that's how Luke wants to end the gospel, the, the gospel, the book of Acts, the gospel of the birth of the church. And so that's something for us to remember that that's what we're about as Christians. Christianity, as you already heard me say about health, has impact on every area of life. It has impact on what you do in seventh grade mathematics. It has impact on your budget and whether you have one. It has impact on your marriage and who you're married to. It has an impact for um, what you eat as an impact for politics and how you vote and for whom you vote. Christianity has an impact on everything, but what we can do and fall prey to when we say that is getting distracted by the everything and not the one thing that dictates all of those things, which is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Our church will always be a step away from focusing on secondary things. Secondary things that are good things. We can put the family above Jesus. We can put men's ministry above Jesus. We can put women's ministry above Jesus. We can do vocational uh, ministry above Jesus. We can put um, whatever you want to do there above Jesus. And where Luke is ending Acts is saying the important thing is to remember that Jesus Christ is on the throne, the Savior and King, and he's bringing his kingdom to bear in a way that you can have confidence. It's what we're about. It shouldn't be new to you if, you're, if you've been to our church any more than one service that we're all about Jesus or that that's what the Christian church is supposed to be about. But it's so easy to get distracted and not see it. As a friend of mine says, if you were self-deceived, would you know it? The answer is no. If you were self-deceived, you wouldn't know it because you were self-deceived. And so what we constantly have to do is engage the Bible, engage with your pastor, engage with the leaders in the church, engage with one another, and ask ourselves the question, is Jesus still the center of all we do? Is our hope for the future and even the hope for now still staked on him and his resurrection? Are the possessions of this world and my longings for a bigger bank account nudging Jesus out of the way? It's a question we constantly have to ask ourselves, and it's something that Luke is highlighting here at the end of the book, not only as he bookends this section, but it's actually how he started Acts. So if you want to go back for your homework and read Acts 1, 1 through 3, it actually does it in reverse order, and Paul says, O Theophilus, I want to tell you all about Jesus, the King and Messiah, and I want to tell you about the kingdom of God, and then he launches into it. So Luke's being a good author, he's starting, he's ending where he started, and he's summarizing the importance of this um, doctrine. And so where I wanted to end as we look at this section, you probably noticed that there was a quote from Isaiah 6 
Um, it's a very important verse as we think about our ministry to people who do not yet know Jesus. Um, if you don't know Jesus yet and you're, you're not a Christian looking in on the truth of Christianity, um, or if you're listening along um, on our podcast, encourage you um, to just listen for a minute and not tune me out or tune it off, because what I'm about to say might offend you. And what the Apostle Paul says when he quotes Isaiah 6 is offensive to the ways we want to think about ourselves. If you remember, Isaiah 6 is a very encouraging passage. It's the passage that we get the the thrice holy that we put into our hymns, like holy, 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 God Almighty, the great hymn that we know, and some of the other things. It's a wonderful passage where Isaiah is just going about his business. He walks into the temple, about to do some of the services he needed to do in the temple, and God shows up. And when God shows up, he tends to mess everything up that we plan to do. Isaiah falls down and says, Woe unto me, a man of sinful lips, dwelling among a people of sinful lips. I am undone. He's met with God's glory, and he sees how far he falls short from God's glory, and he needs God's mercy, and God in his mercy sends an angel to him with a coal and heals him by touching the coal to his lips. Isaiah said, My lips are dirty and sinful. And so the angel comes and and touches a cleansing coal to his lips. And then you hear God proclaim in heaven, who will go for us? If you've ever been to a missions conference, it's what they say in missions conferences. Who will go? Who will be willing to stand up and go to the far reaches of the world? Who will be willing to go to the other side of Culpeper County with the gospel? And Isaiah says, I'll go, send me. And usually we end there. And stop in Isaiah 6. And the reason we do that at verse, between verses 8 and 9 is verse 9 gets incredibly discouraging. And God says, okay, well, and we'll quote from, um, from our own passage here in Acts. Um, this is what he says, Isaiah, you volunteered to be a missionary. This is what I'd like you to do. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. We have this great moment of healing, of calling, of accepting the call, and God says, your ministry is going to be one of frustration and very little fruit. You're going to share the gospel with people, and they're going to stare at you like you are a crazy idiot. You're going to go to them and you're going to tell them that God is merciful and gracious, that they are sinners, should repent and turn to him, and they're going to hate you, spit on you, curse your name, and persecute you. How'd you like to sign up for that missionary trip? But that's often what we face when we preach God's gospel. And that's because when we preach the gospel, it's not simply convincing someone that Jesus is the Christ. It's not like somehow they've just misunderstood some key truth and we're going to share it with them like some mid-level marketing something or other and there's this secret something you're missing out for all of the greatness in your life and they're going to say, oh, I want to buy your timeshare. That's not what it is. The Greek word for the mind is nous, N-O-U-S. And so within theology, we often talk about neuthetic sin, and it simply says this, that not only are your affections shot through with sin, so you don't always desire what you want to do, not only are your actions, what you do, shot through with sin, so you don't always do what you'd like to do, but your mind is actually messed up as well. 
and there are times that you misunderstand who God is and what he's about in his mercy, and not only are there times that you misunderstand, there are times you intentionally misunderstand so that you can continue to hate the Lord. And if you've been married, you know how that goes. You ever been in an argument before and you're about halfway into the argument and you are absolutely sure that you're right and that your spouse is wrong and you can't believe that they're holding that position and then all of a sudden you get to the point, start to realize after you've calmed down a little bit, wait a minute, I was wrong. Not only was I wrong, but my spouse was willing to tell me that I was wrong and they were willing to have a fight with me because they loved me. You realize that in the midst of that argument, you were continuing your misunderstanding because you wanted to be right, not because you were right. That's the way our minds work. And that's the way that our minds act to God before he changes us. So that you can go to someone who does not know the Lord God, who has not been regenerated, and you will preach to them a beautiful God of grace, and they will make him to be a hurtful taskmaster who is ugly and awful and they will hate him and not agree with the gospel. Or you will come and preach to someone the importance of the gospel and how serious it is to consider these things. And instead of seeing the seriousness of it, they'll say, it's not a big deal, I'll consider it later. Or you'll display to them the love that Christians share with one another within their body of faith and they will say, I can get that anywhere. And it's not because they have a low IQ. It's not because you haven't used the right words. It's because God in his providence has not changed and renewed their minds to see him as he is and so know him as he is in the gospel. And it's described here as Paul interacts with the Jews and they reject him. And he says, Isaiah talked about this. That if you are not a Christian and you are rejecting the gospel of God, it is not that the judgment of God may one day come upon you, but that it already is in your blindness. It already is on you in your hardness of heart and in your deafness. It is a scary thing. And so what the Lord does in salvation as he changes our hearts to understand him so that the nuthetic effects of sin start to be undone in our minds and we see the gospel for what it is and all of its truth and we can believe on God and trust in God for who he is. And when we see people who haven't believed, we aren't puffed up in pride. Oh, well, I had a great pastor. I read a good book or I learned all the cool things that I need to learn. We look at them and say, oh, Lord God, by your mercy, I should be. I mean, if it weren't for your mercy, I should be there. If you didn't come and wrestle me to the ground and win me to yourself, I would be stubborn in my sin and running in the other direction. And that's what Paul's saying as he closes out this passage. And so he says, now the gospel is going to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be amazed, not only in the fact that God has brought the gospel to them, that they might believe and know, but they will look at the Jews all the people of privilege that should have understood, that should have accepted Jesus and didn't, and realize that it's only by God's grace that you're saved. If it was saved by privilege, if you were saved by what you know, if you were saved by your family history, if you were saved by your good works, if you were saved by your sacrifices, then the people that should have been saved should have been the Jews. 
And the fact that they rejected Jesus as their Savior is further testimony that God's salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, and is a further encouragement for us not to boast and to be proud about our salvation, but to say, but by the grace of God, so go I. There's no reason that Joe Holland should be a Christian save but God's grace. And you either. And Paul preaches it very specifically here, quoting Isaiah. And if I could put you in that story that continues to this day. And so the Bible teaches that one day there will be a mass conversion, a mass revival of the Jewish people. That up until this day, there have been Jews like the Apostle Paul who believed. But until that day, what God has done is decided to turn his sights to the Gentiles. That the Gentiles, non-Jews, most of you, um, would believe in the Lord God and come in with amazement that not growing up with an ethnic family line that lends yourself towards any status with God, with the lines that we have, that we will be accepted by grace that would be ushered into faith, to this faith family that now share with the people of God scattered through all history. This is your story. You're in the middle of it. And it continues to move on to this day. Jews to this day are not like JV Christians. They are unconverted because they have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. If Jews will be saved, they will profess in Jesus just as the Gentiles have. And if you get that parallel between those two, you understand the rest of the New Testament. One of the glories of the New Testament is that folks like us would believe in the gospel. Amazing. Amazing. So as we close this series and we close the book of Acts, I've said to you before, the thing that every person is looking for Um, is to answer three questions. And they look inside themselves, and they study, and they do all kinds of stuff. They get coaching. I'm like a a personality test, like, addict. Like, I've done every one. I'm an ENTJ. I'm a number six on on the Enneagram. I can tell you my strengths finders list and how those break down. Like, I have just tested, like, every kind of test that I can um, to try and figure out how has God wired me and what am I supposed to do. But to answer these three questions, you can't look at yourself and you can't take your test. The three questions are, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? And with whom am I supposed to be doing it? Everyone's trying to answer that question. Everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. And in the gospel of God, God has given us the ability to answer them not by looking at ourselves or taking tests, but looking to Jesus Christ. And once our our eyes are off ourselves and looking to Christ, we find our identity secure in him so that we are the children of God, dearly beloved, adopted into God's family, forgiven of our sins and having paradise secured for us when one day we die or Jesus returns for us. Our identity is secure. What are we supposed to be doing in this life? Our story? Our story is set as missionaries. God has placed you where he's placed you in the relationships that he's given you with the job that he's given you or the calling that he's given you so that you would proclaim the gospel in ways only you can to people only you can reach. That you would love and serve them tangibly in relationship and that you would also share with them the amazing grace that God has brought in the world through Jesus. It's your story. It's what God's called you to do. With whom are you supposed to do it? You're supposed to do it with the church. You are now a part of the church, whether you like it or not. 
Some of you are members of Christ's covenant, some of you aren't, but if you're a Christian, you're a part of the family of God and a part of the, what we call the invisible church. You can't see it, it's scattered across the world, but it's made up of people who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. It is your base community, foundationally who you are, so that everything else breaks down. Is one of the hopes that we have for the healing of communities when we look at things like Ferguson or other, you know, more fickle and vain things. We head into college sports seasons and we talk smack of our college sports teams, whether it's Redskins or Cowboys or UVA or Virginia Tech, or whether you're old or young or rich or poor or black or white or somewhere in between on the ethnic hue. Because of what God has done, he's placed you in the church, which is your primary group of people with whom you will always do life until you arrive home after your death or Jesus' return in paradise, worshiping God around the throne, quoting Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain and yet is still standing. Jesus has answered those things. He's shown you in the book of Acts how he's done that. And he's told you that that story is now ongoing in the life of the local church. It is what God is doing in the world is through groups of people like us gathering on Sunday, scattering during the week to serve him and gathering back on Sunday. And so in terms of how should this sermon, how should this sermon series um, affect you, what does it look like to obey um, Acts and this latter part of Acts? I simply ask this question, what do you need to change in your life to see the story of Acts is your story? What do you need to believe about God's calling in your life what do you need to believe about God's victory over sin? What do you need to believe about the person sitting next to you or your investment in this church body? What do you, if you're not a Christian, need to simply believe about the gospel to start to say, Acts is my story. It's not a story. It's not just a book of the Bible. It's not just historically true, but it is my story, and I am a part of that as the gospel continues to reach people in Culpeper County and Fauquier County and Madison County and Orange County and everywhere that you will go after that. I encourage you with that as we leave the book of Acts behind, because in the end, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done with his gospel, a work that's ongoing, a story that we're a part of um, as this church. Let me pray for us as we conclude. Father, we love you. We're so thankful for your word, which is true in every part. We're thankful for the gospel message that we've heard from the latter part of Acts. We're thank you, thankful for the way you preserve the life of the Apostle Paul to bring Acts to Rome across an ocean into Culpeper County through some German Calvinists and now to us in this local church being planted here. And so, Father, we love you. We give you our very lives and ask, Lord, that you would continue to use us as you wish. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please stand as we um, respond with the song, Jesus, thank you.